deliver faster, lower-risk integration projects with WSO2's technologies for open-source API management, enterprise integration, and identity management. All delivered using WSO2's integration methodology for agility. Learn more at WSO2.com. Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty for the InfoQ Culture Podcast. I've got the privilege of sitting down and chatting with Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt. Some of you will recognize these names. They are the names behind Pragmatic, and they've brought many, many different books, articles, magazines to the attention of the community over the years. They were also signatories of the Agile Manifesto. Dave, Andy, welcome. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having us. Glad yeah, to thank you, Sean. So, aside from that little bit of a lead-in, do you want to tell me who you are and why you're here? <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it brief. Well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start because Andy is clearly feeling shy today. So, my name's Dave Thomas. Um, I am a programmer. I have been a programmer, oh, I don't know, since before writing was invented, probably. It feels that way sometimes. And I got together as an independent consultant with Andy back in the mid-90s, I guess. And we went around basically working on projects with teams that were struggling a bit. And from there, there's an origin story to the original Pragmatic Programmer book, which we can tell you if you're interested. But we wrote the book. We got involved with people who were doing work on agility and general software development. We formed the Pragmatic Bookshelf which means we've published about 350-odd titles so far. And generally, speaking for myself, I just have fun you know, working in tech, playing around with code, and I still program. Let me add to that, since he covered a lot of the basics, but I'm Andy Hunt. I started programming and using email before the at sign was popular, you know, while dinosaurs grazed outside the window gently. Screwing around with tech at an early age, because I enjoy it, and it's fun trying to, to make it work, trying to figure it out, trying to learn how to get it to do the things I want it to do. And I've been at this for, you know, however many decades now, and I'm still struggling to figure it all out and figure out how to get things to do what I want them to do. So it is continual learning. And, you know, just because we've been doing it for a long time, we've got some great advice that has helped people get further along you know, I want to caution that, you know, we still don't have all the answers. We're still figuring it out too. I think that's actually an important point too, though, Sean, because when Andy says we're still figuring it out, I think that's the key to what we do actually, because a lot of people get this idea that, okay, programming is some kind of science. And once you've worked it out, then you're a programmer and you just follow the rules and you'll be good. Or they'll find a book somewhere that says, do this, do that. And they'll follow that along. And our experience has been that that's not true. It doesn't work. And that, we are still exploring this whole domain, trying to work out how to make it work. So one of the things that we try really hard to do is to kind of like have this little angel or devil or whatever on our shoulder the whole time, looking at what we're doing and criticizing it. And based on that, we kind of like learn what works, what doesn't work. So we kind of like, as well as thinking about what we're doing, we're thinking about how we're doing it. And I think that's really important when, you know, the whole world is still struggling to work out how we tame this beast called programming. And that was a large part why we gravitated towards the word pragmatic in the first place or pragmatic programmers, pragmatic bookshelf. This idea of trying to get to the essence of this is what works for here and for now. This may not be the same thing that works next time. 
And the, one of the dangers that I think we really fall into as a profession is trying to figure out that, okay, if we can just figure it out this once, we'll have the magic formula, we'll have the template, we'll have the magic process. You know, we can just do this every time and it will just work. And it, it's this, you know, very persistent dream that we all sort of fall prey to. And of course, it doesn't work that way. And this is, you know, definitely a discomfort I see in the quote agile space, you know, starting with this idea that, well, we are still discovering, right? The opening words of the manifesto that, that Dave and I helped craft start off with, you know, we are still figuring this out. We're discovering. We continue to discover. And yet you've got folks out there who want to force it into a, well, we found this one way to do it. We're going to do a, an iteration of this fixed length and we're going to have these reports and all this paperwork and all this process. And by God, everyone in the company is going to do it. Because don't, we forget, don't, forget, don't forget the charts on the walls. And the big charts on the walls because, you know, we like to buy printer ink. And we'll, and, we'll you know, standardize your story points. And standardize, which are useless to start with, but that's a whole other discussion. But yeah, this whole like, you know, let's nail it down, optimize it, standardize it, make it the same. And now you've crushed any hope of getting it right or figuring it out. You've crushed it. You've crushed it dead. So that kind of dogmatism is really the opposite of a pragmatic approach. And so we rail quite hard against that kind of regimentation for its own sake that doesn't get you any benefit and, in fact, is actually quite destructive to what you're trying to accomplish. But you can see why people do that, though, because it's apparently easier to manage it. You know, if you can say to somebody, when will this be done? And they say three and a half years, and you go write that in your diary and then move on to something else that's a lot easier than being involved. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing too, is this idea that, you know, if I can manage this as if it was a factory, then, you know, I can get onto the golf course a bit quicker. And, you know, that's just not true. You were both involved in writing that manifesto and that very, very first statement, which is the one that is almost never quoted. We are uncovering better ways of developing software by doing it and helping others do it. You've mentioned some of the, dare we say, harm, certainly, but potential for harm. What is the state of agility, as you see it? I'll speak a little bit for Dave here, because he's about to burst a good hour-long rant, and I am as well. I think the state is, to me, kind of disappointing. There's certainly some encouraging signs. I mean, it was a delight when we went back through and revised the original Pragmatic Programmer book for this new 20th anniversary edition, it was really quite a pleasure, quite an honor to see things that we were on the cusp of, things that we called out as, hey, this is becoming a thing, this is important, you should do this, and are now accepted and standard and sort of almost unquestioned, which starts to lead to another problem, but we'll get to that later. So yeah, on the one hand, a lot of things, we've become accustomed to them, better ways of doing it, and that's great, but I'm still fairly cynical that there's still this overarching misconception of what agile is supposed to be and you know again you look at the opening stanzas of the manifesto the very first call out point is individuals and interactions over processes and tools but all anyone ever talks about is processes and tools so andy is right i have a rant but i'm going to try really hard not to do it because it's a little bit negative so instead let's look at the positive side the manifesto fundamentally is about feedback. Every process in there is to do with taking small steps, getting feedback, and adjusting as you go along. So I think part of that ethic 
has actually permeated through into the industry. So that there are people now who are doing dynamic releases on every successful commit, that are doing good testing, that are working on A-B testing with users to try to work out how things should be. So I think a lot of that is actually very positive. I think the thing that is missed is the fact that there is no such thing as, quote, agile, unquote, because agile is not a noun. You can't go down to the local market and buy a pound of agile. Agile is an adjective. It's the way you do something. It's the values that you have. So it's really not something that you can apply in terms of like, I'll go and get a consultant in and the consultant will teach us how to be agile and then we're done. It's really something you live and it's a dynamic process. It's one where you're constantly monitoring what you're doing and making little adjustments, sometimes big adjustments. Even if it's working, you're going to change things because how are you going to know if there's a better way or not unless you every now and then break something by trying something different? So the real spirit of agility is this idea of constantly monitoring what you're doing, constantly trying small things, constantly getting feedback. And if I have a problem with the current state of the software development world, it is full of people who, not full of, there are very many people who have taken some aspect of not just agility, but almost any practice and turned it into a religion and will not brook any discussion about alternatives or, you know, so we have to do it this way. You know, if you're not testing, then you're not my friend, you know, and that's just plain damn stupid because it's absolutely wrong to assume that there is a best way. Every time someone uses the words best practice, you know, I throw up just a little bit in my mouth because there is no such thing. Every time someone says best practice, we have to convince them that as soon as you say that, a puppy dies. It is on you, and that is on your conscience. Yeah, and that was easier before I ran out of puppies. <laughs> because the problem is, I mean, that phrase, right, ignores the whole issue of context. You say, best practice, okay, great. For who? Under what circumstances? Yeah. You know, what, what is the environment? What is the culture? What is the organization like where this did work well? Do we have similar conditions here? Would this possibly even work for us? But we rarely have that, those in-depth levels of conversation. It's just, oh, this is best practice. Do it. Shut your mouth. Don't ask questions. Right? Again, very, a very dogmatic, almost weaponized approach to Agile. And that, to me, is very depressing to see that kind of thing happen when the goal is so much the exact opposite of that, of always questioning, as Dave was just saying, always getting the feedback. But when you get feedback, that means you're going to make changes. You know, we're going to change this. We're going to change this a little bit, you know, not wholesale, every week change everything, because that's mm -hmm. stupid as well. But we're going to make little changes mm -hmm. constantly. And where I think this breaks down is then when you try to interface with the rest of an organization who's not hip to that, you know, they want their procedures and their manuals and everything documented, and they don't want it to change ever. So you've got a fundamental impedance mismatch there against common management practices, common accounting practices. You know, I'm not too sure I agree 100% with that because there are companies where it's the other way around, where the company really, really does want to be 
dynamic and agile and change things all the time. I mean, I can think of like some really big examples. I mean, I would imagine that someone like Amazon, for example, Mm -hmm. is constantly changing stuff just to see what works and what doesn't work. I do not know what their actual software development practices look like, but that would be a really great place to do some kind of, you know, agile-ish project management. If I think of the QCon conferences, which InfoQ runs, we bring the people from Amazon, from Netflix, from Facebook, from the big names, as well as a lot of the smaller names who are at the leading edge of tech. And something I've seen there is that they barely ever talk about agile but they're always talking about the learning practices and the feedback and adapting and using short release cycles. DevOps, of course, came out of these communities. So, and that's fine. That's yeah. fine. I mean, you know, honestly, I don't care with, if they call it Fred. You yeah. know, as long as they're getting the short feedback and they're learning constantly mm-hmm. doing that, call it whatever you like. Yeah. But you know the funny thing about that then? I mean, I went to a couple of conferences recently and we had a Netflix person there and we had, oh, I can't remember who the other one was. I don't think it was Amazon, but it was somewhere similar in size to Netflix. Okay. And the Netflix guy was talking about some of their DevOps stuff. And he was talking about, they got something like 43 different management tools they're using constantly to manage the network. And everybody went away from that meeting going, oh, wow, that is absolutely amazing. You know, they can tell if that machine over there sneezed. It's incredible. You know, I want that. And nobody that I heard said, wow, if I had 150,000 servers, that would be really good to have, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I don't. I can actually look in the corner and see the smokes coming off it. You know, I don't really need 43 management tools for that. So the fact that they are doing something that's working for them in an agile fashion is unbelievably good, but it's not to be copied. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that it's really personalized. It really has to work for your team and your environment with your project, with your technology, with your company, et cetera, et cetera. Context, right? I mean, it goes back to context again. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. The book, The Pragmatic Programmer 20th Anniversary Edition. What's in it? And why did you write it? We revised it because it was time to revise it, I think is the short answer. A lot's changed, obviously, in 20 years. It's easy to forget that if you go back and look at the world of the mid-1990s, people still had dial-up. You had America Online. You know, it was very much a different world than we have today. A lot of the technology that we used as examples in the book, people probably haven't even heard of today. You know, oh, this is new and exciting and coming up. Well, it didn't and it went nowhere and now no one's heard of it. So there's a little bit of that. And that was kind of the easy level of fix. But then as we started thinking about it and looking at what we'd written, there was a deeper level of not so much fix as changes, changes in attitude, changes in workflow and how people's attitudes, how people approach certain problems, obviously has changed in 20 years. So we were able to you know, use a lot of the same old familiar and classic anecdotes and metaphors, but refresh and revise them for today's world. And we had a bit of an unfair advantage there because we've had 20 years of seeing how people took our advice and being able to say, okay, great, you know, they, they got this one. This is well accepted now. We don't have to beat this drum so hard. People get it. That's fine. And then some others where, well, they may have misinterpreted this a little bit. 
you know, the section on configuration and metadata, the section on dry. These were things where we could make good changes based on feedback, as one does. I hear that's a good thing, you know, over the years to try to get those messages across even more effectively. At the same time, I think there were some overall topics that really could just go. Some of them over the course of time, you know, we looked at that and said, you know, that really doesn't earn its place in the book, particularly as there were new things that we did want to talk about. For example, when we wrote the first edition, concurrency wasn't really a big deal. Now everybody's computer has multiple cores. And so we have to think a lot more about it. So there's a whole new section on concurrency and various you know, suggestions for that. Also, the industry has got to the point where, I mean, it was always, as an industry, since the 60s, it's been significant. But now we've reached a point where software is more than just something that means your bank statements can get there quicker. It is literally changing every aspect of the world, down to organizing rebellions and changing elections. So as developers, we have this mixed blessing of being able literally to write the future. We control very much what the future will look like. And with that comes the curse of incredible responsibility you know, and ethics. How do we make sure that our work is not used for evil. Now, you can't always protect it. But at the same time, I think a lot of developers are very happy to work on stuff because it's interesting tech and because it looks like fun on the resume, but really don't think too hard about you know, what their stuff is going to be used for. And maybe that should change as well. And so that kind of thing has crept into the book, the idea of personal responsibility is actually, in a way, it's kind of like the capstones of the book. Ethics is a topic that we have actually been exploring on InfoQ recently because there have been some some pretty well-publicized examples of bad ethics. It's great to say personal responsibility, but where do we go beyond that? Do you mean in terms of, like, regulation or code of ethics? Do we have a code of ethics? I know the ACM has one, the IEEE Computer Society has one. How many of us sign on to those? With or without that, I think that the most important part is to realize that you have the power to say no. Whether you sign on to the ACM's version or the IEEE's or your own, you know, there is a line that you should personally feel, all right, I am not going to cross that. You know, well, you I'm- have more than the power. You have, you have the duty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's very interesting because I think looking at, I've, I've read some of these code of ethics and I've read some of the conference codes of conduct and I find them all remarkably sad because in a way it's the same as agility versus non-agility in software development in that one way is to try to prescribe And the other way is a kind of generative approach where you don't say this is how you do it. You say this is what we're trying to achieve. And I think for a code of ethics, that's really important. I don't think a code of ethics that says you shall not do this. Here are the following seven words you're not allowed to use, blah, 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 blah. That is not a code of ethics. That is more a checklist of, yeah, I can sign on to this and therefore get an extra $2,000 a year on my next job change. Fundamentally, in the same way that agility is about feedback, I think ethics 
is in some ways a really easy problem if you just phrase it as, would I be happy having this done to me, right? It's kind of like a version of the golden rule. If I'm writing some software, would I be happy for that software to be used on me? And, and if you have to phrase it, if you have to phrase it as, would I be happy with the software being used against me, you have your answer. Well, yeah, but see, here's the thing. Say you're a Twitter developer and your idea is that you can write these 128 character, whatever it was, tweets, and you would broadcast them out, right? It's the world's biggest pub-sub system. There would be unintended consequences of that. When you were first writing it, you could not imagine that you were being used to organize riots or whatever it might be. And even if you could, are those riots for good or riots for evil? Is it white nationalists somewhere or is it revolutionaries in Egypt? And those are really hard things to answer. So I don't think you can say always, will it be used against me? I think all you can do is use your best efforts to try to say, you know, how will this be used? And if I can think of potential bad uses of it, how do I mitigate those? Well, that's stunned everybody into silence. <laughs> well, deep thinking there, but I'm a programmer. I'm sitting in front of a computer. What does this mean to me day to day and in my career? So what I think it means to you is, as Andy said, you have a choice. And more than that, you have a clock running, right? You have one life and nobody else is in charge of your life unless you're married. And as a result, you have the responsibility to manage it, to make it the way you want it to be. So in the same way that you have responsibility when you're creating stuff for other people, you have responsibility when you're creating a life for yourself. And I think as developers, people quite often don't plan as much as they should. So they'll hop from job to job simply because, you know, this one looks bright and shiny and maybe it gets me more money or whatever else and I just move over there. And they don't really think strategically about what would make them happy. Is it always a question of, you know, moving up the, the tree, moving up the pay scale, or are there other things that would make you happy? Are there opportunities to learn that you wouldn't get somewhere else? All those kind of things I think are really, really important. And we have this luxury of being able to work pretty much wherever we want. We don't even have to be on site. We can be sitting in our homes or we can rent somewhere in some exotic location and work off site. We can do all of those things. And pretty much we're one of the few groups of people who can do that. And yet we don't. And we just basically take whatever we're given. So I think that's a responsibility that we have as well. And that is to think about our lives and to try to craft them in such a way that we do good, and we also have the opportunity to be happy. Again, deep food for thought. So our time is coming to a close. Where would people find the book, and where do they find you? Glad you asked. So the book is available as an ebook currently. You can go to prideprog.com and order it straight from there, and you get it in PDF, Mobi, Kindle format, and an EPUB all at once. The hardcover is going to be out this fall. I believe current targets are mid-September, early October sort of time frame. And one thing we are doing different with this edition, funny, we got a lot of feedback from readers the first time at how dog-eared and battered their copies of Pragmatic Programmer had become because they loaned it out, they carried it with them from job to job. You know, these books really saw a lot of action 
out in the field. So we thought it would be fun this time around to issue this edition with a hardcover so it can you know, stand up to the rigors of the developer life out there. And that'll be available in bookstores around the galaxy starting in the fall. But in the meantime, again, you can go to pragprog.com and get a copy, uh, ebook copy right now. You could start reading it today. Dave and Andy, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been a really interesting conversation and good luck with the book and continued good luck with Prague Prog in general. Thanks so much again for having us. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot.